it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Wednesday, September 16th, 2009. You know, I feel like today's program is going to be the first, like, normal program uh, since leaving for the Emergent Conference last week. Done a couple of programs already, but those were not our standard fare, if you would. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Believe me when I tell you, if you have some ideas about how you think God is or what it is that God is doing or has done, and your ideas, uh, whether they burbled up from uh, deep within you or uh, whether or not they came from a guru sitting upon uh, atop uh, Mount Everest, if those ideas contradict God's clear word, uh, then that information about God is false. Yeah, that's right. There is a such thing as true and false when it comes to information about God and his character and uh, and salvation and things like that. And the reason why I say that is because the Bible is the word of God. It doesn't claim to be anything less than that. And our authority for saying that is none other than Jesus Christ himself who basically affirmed that all of the Old Testament scriptures were God's word and that heaven and earth would pass away and his word wouldn't, and uh, it basically put his words on par with the rest of God's word, and we have Jesus' words recorded for us in scripture in the uh, gospel section of the New Testament, and he went on further to give his stamp of approval uh, to the things that the apostles would end up writing. And so, uh, the authority for making such claims about uh, God comes from Jesus Christ himself. And uh, no one's got better, better credentials than he does because he rose from the dead three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate for our sins. So uh, if you got information that contradicts uh, what's written in Scripture, you're, you're just wrong. And uh, depending on uh, what what the information is that you're giving... And uh, who, who it is that you're trusting for your salvation, that information may be a form of verbal idolatry that could land you in hell. I, yeah, I understand that this, it's just not a positive thing to say. And uh, it's really it, politically incorrect for me to be speaking this way, to which I would basically say, tough, get over it, deal with it. Uh, truth is that stark, and I'm not really interested in basically petting your ego or uh, catering to your feelings. Uh, we we got more important things to do here, and that's to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name uh, to all sinners out there who will listen and repent. And if that's not you, well, well, this show probably may not be a good show for you to be listening to because you'll be weeping and gnashing teeth uh, the entire time you're listening. So just want to point that out. You know, I <clears throat> I don't claim to be... Uh, trying to affirm your feelings or anything like that. And yeah, there are false prophets out there. Jesus himself warned us that there would be such people. Uh, The apostles also told us to sharply rebuke those who teach things that are contrary to sound doctrine. 
yeah, I, I know we live in the 21st century, and in, in today's postmodern society, that just is so negative. It sounds like I'm endorsing imperialistic Christianity, <clears throat> to which I would basically say, you go ahead and tell yourself whatever fiction it is that you want to tell yourself in order to avoid the sharp edges of the truth, uh, but in the end, uh, truth will win out. All right, uh, interesting program lined up today. Got a couple of emails I want to read. I'm way behind on email, and I apologize for those of you who've been emailing me. Uh, I Again, I do read them all. I do not have the opportunity to read them all on the air. Uh, today I'm going to read a couple of them to try to start digging my way back through the pile. Uh, and then, the, okay, talk about weird stuff. Peter Rollins, who is one of the up-and-coming emergent thinkers. I mean, Brian McLaren considers him to be a fresh voice in the emergent church movement. Uh, this guy, I mean, kid you not, uh, it, it's he, he sounds like a Jurgen Moltmann uh, follower here. He's got some bizarre ideas. Well, apparently he had a parable contest that he was running over on his blog, and we're going to be reading the winner of the parable contest and basically ask is, what kind of God is this parable about? It's the postmodern, emergent uh, version of the parable of the uh, footprints in the sand. I, I guarantee you, you're going to want to hear this. And then, and then we're going to be doing some news stories today. Uh, to start off with, we're going to get to the story we didn't get to on Monday about the uh, a new survey uh, revealing a prevalence of uh, sexual misconduct among clergy. And then I got a story from the Telegraph in the UK. The headline reads, The Relics and Bones That Bring Us Closer to God. Apparently there in Great Britain, some uh, some saint, her relics are uh, are in Plymouth. They've arrived in Plymouth, and uh, the faithful Catholics are there to be drawn closer to God by being in close proximity to these relics. We'll be commenting on that. I also got a news story out of, of uh, Barna. That, that, uh, new Barna study shows that uh, a large uh, the percent of female senior pastors has doubled over the past 10 years in the United States. What does that tell you? And uh, then we're going to do for our sermon review today. Uh, never, I've, I went back and kind of looked at my notes and realized, you know, I've never reviewed a sermon by Bill Hybels. So today I'm gonna we're gonna it's a first for fighting for the faith. We're gonna review our very first Bill Hybels sermon. Bill Hybels being the senior pastor there at Willow Creek, up in uh, in in outside of Chicago, and uh, so it'll be all kinds of fun. And uh, again, what are we listening for when we listen to a sermon? We listen to how is it as Scripture handled? Is Christ and Him crucified for our sins given as the answer to you know the problem? Uh, how is he handling scripture? Did I mention that? Law and gospel, is it correctly handled? Uh, things of that nature. And so uh, today we'll be uh, reviewing a sermon by Bill Hybels of Willow Creek to compare what he's saying in the name of God to the Word of God and seeing if it uh, if it all plays out uh, in, in a positive sense, that would be. All right, uh, moving on to email today. Again, I apologize. I have not done email in a while, and the pile is getting substantially large. Um, Lee writes from uh, Jonesburg, Illinois. He says, or Johnsburg, Illinois. He says, Chris, here's a good quote from the book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Bible. Thank God that somebody's written something like that. He says, this book is a pretty, is a pretty good book in defense of the Bible. And this quote is from the chapter in, uh, entitled, Put not your trust in princes. 
uh, under the subhead, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, I'm assuming here, Lee, that this is in response to uh, the, the my critique of the Rob Bell N.T. Wright gospel that Jesus came to stick it to the Caesar man, uh, and that uh, the gospel is is that Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar, which by the way is just ridiculous. I mean, any of you out there being oppressed by a Caesar? I mean, can you? Can, <laughs> It, don't point to some metaphorical, allegorical Caesar. Oh yeah, I'm oppressed by the Caesar of debt. You see, I have I have mounting credit card debt, and I'm being oppressed by Caesar as a as as a result of it. No, you're not being oppressed by Caesar. You're being oppressed by really bad decisions that you've made. Um, <laughs> seriously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> In other words, you're Caesar because you're the one who willingly put yourself into that debt. <laughs> just just saying. Anyway, so I don't consider the uh, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar gospel to be all that good of news. Anyways, which, by the way, just let me ask you, was it Satan or was it Caesar who was tempting Eve in the garden? Just, you know, by way of historical uh, biblical stuff here. Um, by the way, the answer to the question is uh, Satan, not Caesar. Uh, who was it that was tempting Jesus while he was uh, fasting in the wilderness for 40 days? Was it Satan or was it Caesar? Yeah, that would be um, <clears throat> Satan, not Caesar. Um, when Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, which, by the way, actually, I think a better translation of that from the Greek is deliver us from the evil one. Uh, that, look it up in the Greek, those of you who know it, and, and uh, I think that's uh, actually a little closer to what's being said there in the Greek. So when when Jesus says, you know, pray, deliver us from the evil one, uh, is he referring to Satan or Caesar? Uh, who was it that uh, asked God if he could uh, destroy Job's life and uh, basically uh, test Job to see if he would uh, abandon God and curse God? Was it Satan or was it Caesar? Once again, the answer to the question is Satan, not Caesar. So um, this whole uh, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar gospel just is not convincing to me, uh, considering the fact I'm not being oppressed by a Caesar, and I've got bigger uh, fish that are trying to uh, destroy us. Uh, that would be namely Satan. <clears throat> anyway, uh, we we read, continue with the email here. Uh, from Lee, quoting the book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Bible, regarding uh, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar, the author, uh, Robert J. Hutchinson, writes, he says, it seems certain that Jesus was not a, politically, a political revolutionary, despite what Roman officials may have thought and uh, modern liberation theologians seem to advocate. Hitchin Hutchinson uh, here has correctly identified. I would add into the mix not just liberation theologians, but their kissing cousins, the emergence. He says his agenda appears to have been substantially more ambitious than that. The salvation of the entire world. Right. <laughs> Jesus wasn't a political revolutionary. I mean, some of the stuff he did and said is revolutionary in a political sense. But that's kind of, you know, the... Um, the fruit of it, but not the root of it, if you know what I mean. So Hutchinson points out that uh, Jesus had bigger things to do, more ambitious things to do. He was uh, saving the entire world. And indeed, the movement he launched over a period of just three years ended up conquering not just Rome, but a large portion of the planet. In any event, Jesus was quite explicit that he was not a political revolutionary. He came not to rule, but to die. 
Uh, and the Son of Man, he said, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 10:45. This does not mean that Jesus' message uh, does not have political consequences, only that his primary purpose does not appear to have been the overthrow of the existing political order. Uh, correct, uh, uh, Robert Hutchinson, that is absolutely true. We continue reading. The early Christian community, too, did not advocate violence or rebellion against Rome. The Pharisees, uh, Pharisee uh, uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, was a proud Roman citizen. Yes, he was. And when he became a Christian, he did not turn in his Roman citizen card. In fact, he kept a valid uh, Roman citizen passport for the duration of his lifetime. Uh, we read, let every person be subordinate to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been established by God. Paul told the Roman Christian community in the, in the early 60s AD, when rumblings of rebellion in Judea were already being heard, whoever resists authority opposes what God has appointed, and those who oppose it will bring judgment upon themselves, the Apostle Paul wrote. Thus, the early Christians, seeing their mission as primarily the conversion of sinners and being an oppressed and persecuted minority without any power anyway, did not dwell immediately on the political implications of Jesus' teaching uh, and life. It was only later, once Christians were in positions of power, that they were forced to, uh, to confront the problem of what to do about abuses of power. Lee, that was a fantastic quote. Thank you very much and uh, substantial su uh, contribution that you've made through your email here to uh, Fighting for the Faith. Great, great stuff. <laughs> so the whole stick, Jesus came to stick it to the Caesar man thing. Uh, there's other people out there who seem to think that uh, this one has uh, been weighed and tested and found wanting. Uh, regarding uh, Mark Driscoll and his sermon at... Uh, at uh, the Crystal Cathedral. I have received several emails, and I have yet to receive a single email from a single listener who says that uh, Pastor Driscoll should not have preached at the Crystal Cathedral. By the way, we did review the entire sermon uh, as broadcast on the Hour of Power that Mark Driscoll presented, and he proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified for sins and called the Folks at uh, the Crystal Cathedral to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It was a fantastic sermon in that sense. Poor old uh, Robert Schuler looked like he was suffering from gastrointestinal problems uh, during the sermon. And uh, <laughs> because the words uh, sin and things like that were mentioned. And uh, so far, I have yet to receive a single uh, email uh, saying that he should not have been there. And by the way, I will div divulge at this point that. I don't have a problem with Driscoll going to uh, uh, the Crystal Cathedral to proclaim Christ and him crucified. None whatsoever. And uh, I got an email here from uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, one of our regular emailers and uh, one of the fact checkers for uh, Fighting for the Faith, by the way. He, uh, he lives across the pond there. And uh, we read, uh, Dear Chris, for what it's worth, in my opinion, Mark Driscoll certainly ought to have preached at the Crystal Cathedral. Those people there needed to hear what he said. George Whitfield once said that he would preach in St. Peter's in Rome if he was able to preach the gospel there. The only reasons for a minister to refuse any invitation to preach are if he has a uh, commitment to ta that takes priority over it or if he's forbidden to preach the gospel. 
If Driscoll had tickled the ears of the Crystal Cathedral crowd, then it would have proved he ought not to have gone there. He did not, proving he was right to go. What he said was exactly what we preach at Bethel, the law and the gospel as they ought to be preached. (laughs) Exactly. You know, listen, if you have the opportunity to go down to hell itself and proclaim Christ and him crucified for sins and call the call, call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins within Hades itself please go well that that sounds odd you're saying we should go to well no that's not what i meant but you get what i'm saying if if i don't care who calls me to preach the gospel if someone invites me to, you know to a, a, a Joel Osteen's uh church you know, if I'm if I if I'm invited to preach there, which, by the way, will never happen in a million years. Uh, but if it were to happen, the one thing I would make a point of doing is proclaiming Christ and him crucified for sins and point out what sin is and call the sinners there at uh, Lakewood to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name. Pastor Charmley, I completely agree with you. And uh, I think your criteria was right. And I agree with Whitfield. Um, uh, if, <laughs> if the opportunity came to proclaim uh, Christ and him crucified at St. Peter. Peter's in Rome, in the heart of Roman Catholicism, absolutely we should go and proclaim the gospel there. All right, moving along to news, which means I need to play. There we go. Survey reveals prevalence of clergy sexual misconduct. Yeah, this one's a problem. Um, okay, this one's from the Christian Post. I also had I read a, a, a version of this in the at the Washington Post, which uh, which I felt was a little bit <clears throat> harsh. The author of this Christian Post story is uh, Audrey Barrick, and uh, we read. Findings from a nationwide study reveal that clergy sexual misconduct is more prevalent than many people believe. The study is part of an effort uh, by Baylor University uh, to identify and prevent clergy sexual misconduct. According to the research by Baylor University, 3.1% of adult women who attend religious services at least once a month have been victims of clergy sexual misconduct since turning 18. In other words, seven women in every congregation of 400 adults have been victimized. Yikes. Wow. Uh, 92% of the sexual advances were made in secret, and 67% of the offenders were married to someone else at the time of the advance. Quote, because many people are familiar with some of the high-profile cases of sexual misconduct, Most people assume that it is just a matter of a few charismatic leaders preying on vulnerable followers, said Dr. Diane Garland, dean of the School of Social Work at Baylor University and lead researcher in the study. In a statement Wednesday, uh, she said, what, quote, what this research tells us, however, is that clergy sexual misconduct with adults is a widespread problem in congregations of all sizes and occurs across denominations. Now that we have a better understanding of the problem, we can start looking at prevention strategies. The study, which was conducted on more than 3,500 American adults, is the largest scientific study into clergy sexual misconduct 
and is being published later this year in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. It is part of an effort by Baylor to identify and prevent clergy sexual misconduct with virtually no research or information available to inform, inform prevention strategies. Baylor University School of Social Work sought to provide data for that purpose. Along with spreading awareness and educating the public, the team at Baylor hopes the findings will be used to draft model legislation to make it illegal for clergy to make sexual advances, uh, just as, as it is with patients and doctors. Uh, hey, I, that, <laughs> I'll say this. Uh, it, it sounds like, based upon this data, that there's need for, um, a very strong need for uh, legislation along these lines. My only concern would be uh, it, you know, if you define this in, you know, in such a way that you make it impossible for a single pastor to uh, you know, date, a, date a fine Christian woman from within the congregation, I think that would create some problems. Um, but again, it's, apparently something needs to be done here. Sexual misconduct by clergy is only illegal in Texas and Minnesota. Garland hopes the study will prompt congregations to considering uh, to consider adopting policies and procedures designed to protect their members from leaders who abuse their power. Quote, many people, including the victims themselves, often label incidences of clergy sexual misconduct with adults as affairs, said Garland. In reality, they are an abuse of spiritual power by the religious leader. Wow. The research study also includes a paper co-authored by Garland on first-hand accounts from men and women who are victims of clergy sexual misconduct, family members or spouses of victims, religious leaders who have committed uh, CSM, that's clergy sexual misconduct, and helping professionals who have provided care for offenders and survivors. Uh, survivors? <laughs> Okay, got to got to take one small issue here. Uh okay. If you're a victim of clergy sexual misconduct, survivor seems to uh imply that your life was endangered uh during the event, which may or may not be true, but anyway, that's, that's a weird term. Data from the 2008 General Social Survey and in-person survey conducted by National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago was used to estimate the prevalence of clergy sexual misconduct. Questions developed specifically for this project were administered by the Baylor team. Clergy sexual misconduct was defined as minister, priests, rabbis, or other clergy persons or religious leaders who make sexual advances or propositions to persons in the congregations they serve who are not their spouses or significant others. Yeah, boy, I got to tell you, this this kind of uh, news is not good news at all. And um, yeah, I, this is the kind of thing where, uh, yeah, there needs to be smart policies in place, but also there needs to be, you know, the proper preaching of law and gospel, even in these situations. And, um, you know, I, I wonder if, if this isn't indicative, because uh, this just seems like a high number here. If this isn't indicative of of a bigger problem within Christianity, and if this is not a fruit of the fact that uh, so many churches have abandoned sound biblical preaching uh, as it pertains to correctly distinguishing between law and gospel and providing and basically proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. 
Uh, the reason I say that is, is because uh, w- when you preach life tips and self-help strategies, there's no power there to really curb this uh, the sinful nature, none whatsoever. Uh, curbing the sinful nature really is a fruit of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And even at that point, it's not a perfect, you know, we're not talking about something that you know leads to Christian perfection. But uh, you, when you see the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, this kind of stuff should not be prevalent uh, among, um, um, basically among clergymen. So the question I have is, is I think that I, I, the one thing I can't figure out here is uh, of all the clergymen in, you know, you know, of all the clergymen in the country, uh, what percentage of the, of those clergymen are guilty of, of these uh, sexual advances that you know that constitute clergy sexual misconduct? You know, I I'd be curious to see if the survey itself tries to come up with an estimate as to how many, what percentage of pastors and clergymen are guilty of this particular sin. So again, this is um, not good news. This is very sad news and. Uh, uh, the Christian Church needs to address this not only by through policy, but also by examining uh, the the relationship between this and sound doctrine as it pertains to law and gospel and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. All right, this is a bizarre story uh, from the Telegraph in the UK. The headline reads: "The relics and bones that bring us closer to God." Really, I had no idea that relics and bones could bring me closer to God. Where is that in the Bible? Any Anyone have any clue as to where in the Bible it says that a relic and or piece of bone that is capable of bringing you closer to God? I had no idea that relics were a means of grace. Uh, Christopher House finds that the allure of relics, uh, relics beats the human revulsion for dead bodies. Subhead, by the way, Christopher House is the author. This is published in the Telegraph in the UK, uh, September 16th, 2009. We read, a woman who's been dead for 112 years arrives in Plymouth today. And at the weekend and and at the weekend, thousands are expected to turn out when she moves on to Birmingham. Apparently, she's not going to be moving by herself, by the way. Um, <laughs> just want to point that out. Somebody's going to have to move her because she's dead. Um, uh, Teresa Martin will be the center of attention in a month-long tour of England and Wales, but while her picture dominates dozens of venues, all to be seen of her in person is a casket that holds her mortal remains. Does anyone else find that just creepy? Those old bones of St. Teresa or Teresa of Lisieux as she is better known, will not be treated with, with the unease that relatives show departed loved ones, but as a sort of gateway into heaven for worshippers' devotions. I, I, I kid you not. Wow. Uh, some will even hope for healing. <laughs> really? Hunger for relics may be uh, universal. One of Michael Jackson, Jackson's gloves has been auctioned for uh, thirty thousand pounds, but dead bodies are a speci- uh, are a special kind. I have often seen vis- visitors to Westminster Cathedral recoil after inspecting a glass case in a side chapel. It holds the body of Saint John Southworth, a kindly man who worked in the slums nearby in the seventeenth century and was executed just for being a Catholic priest. His body was. Uh, 
uh, decorously dressed in a red chasuble and his face covered in a silver mask. It is just that tourists, curious as they may be, uh, see the world through the optic of their mobile phone cameras, are not used to stumbling across dead bodies. They, generally, we don't keep dead bodies lying around uh, for us to be looking at. <clears throat> we continue... So what's the official line on relics? The Catechism of the Catholic Church puts them in the same category as pilgrimages and holy medals as expressions of popular piety. But there is a deeply mysterious root to their veneration. The rational argument is that when Jesus Christ was born as a human being, the taking on of flesh by God changed forever the status of the human body. Now, this is what we call complete speculative theology. Listen again to this argument. The rationale, uh, the rational argument is that when Jesus Christ was born as a human being, the taking on a flesh by God changed forever the status of the human body. Then why do we still die? <clears throat> Just asking the question. By the way, where is this found in Scripture? Nowhere. Uh, quote, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Once saints are in heaven, honoring their mortal remains is to honor the God who made them saints. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> boy, that's quite a leap of logic. Whether you like it or not, it's hard to accept the practice of the early church without accepting the veneration of relics. Take Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, who had known the apostle John, a close friend of Jesus, in A.D. 155. He was executed after he was burned at the stake. His followers wrote, We took up his bones, which are more valuable than precious stones and finer than refined gold, and laid them in a, seem, in a seemly place where the Lord will permit us to gather in gladness and joy. At the tombs of the martyrs was performed the central act of Christianity, the Eucharist. At time, as time went on, every altar was fitted with a relic of a saint. Uh, kings competed with the holiest items. In 1247, King Henry III carried a relic of the holy blood of Jesus humbly on foot from St. Paul's to Westminster Abbey. Really, I wonder what that was. His brother-in-law, Louis the Ninth of France, built the Saint Chapelle in France, uh, in Paris, to house Christ's crown of thorns. You know, by the way, I just want to let you know that uh, there are so many places and so many people who claim to have uh, thorns from the crown of Christ that you could probably fill an entire uh, the you know the, the entire inner city of Jerusalem with the thorns. Fierce penalties uh, were hurled by the church to anyone who sold a relic, a damnable sin of simony. I, I wondered whether I might have risked hellfire a couple of years ago when I bought a book signed by the saintly John Henry Nowen. I paid uh, for the book, and uh, not, the, not the holy connection, but the distinction is a slippery one. Thus, the sameless venerations simply stole the body of St. Mark the Evangelist from Alexandria in Egypt, and it remains in the lovely sea-washed basilica next to the Doge's Palace, which is where it is still honored by pious pilgrims. Uh, the instinct of worshippers is that if, it, that if, in faith, they touch a relic, like the woman whose uh, hemorrhage was healed by touching the hem of Jesus' garment, God will bless them with grace and earthly blessings. Yeah, that's the logic, isn't it? Too bad there isn't any biblical data that says that we can do the same thing, yet alone uh, touch a saint or get in close proximity to a saint's bone and have the same thing occur to us. All of this lacks any biblical <laughs> grounding whatsoever, at least in real Christian doctrine. 
So during her British tour, I won't buy a T-shirt or mug with St. Teresa's face on it, but I'll go see her relics and ask her prayers. A a lot of people will. She's dead. She will not be praying for you. Yeah, this is, again, uh, just keep in mind, um, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, is still in apostasy. They've anathematized the gospel. Uh, They continue to uh, pray uh, pray to the saints rather than to Jesus Christ. Uh, the veneration of relics is alive and well in Roman Catholicism, and the ooh ick factor um, just seems to doesn't um, stop people from taking these huge leaps of logic that are not supported by the clear passages of Scripture. This is what happens when you abandon sola scriptura. All right, we're up on our first break. When we come back, we got one more uh, news story. Uh, Barna uh, uh, has a, a, a news story that says that the percent of female senior pastors has doubled over the past 10 years. We'll be looking at that. And then we're going to be looking at Peter Rollins' parable winner. He, uh, the, an emergent parable uh, about the footsteps, uh, footprints in the sand. Apparently, the, the, the emergent version of it is oh so enlightening and then uh, we're going to be listening in the second hour to a sermon uh, by bill hybels uh, entitled the forgotten way he's uh, sent out press releases letting everybody know about this uh, forgotten way uh, sermon series so we're going to read a little bit of a news story that was uh, formed as a as a result of the uh, the press release that he sent out and then listen to the first sermon in this series entitled the forgotten way in hour number two, so you definitely don't want to miss that. Miss that. Now, if you would uh, like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition or any previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Yep, that's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. My name is Chris Roseboro. Or you can uh, follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey, you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. 
They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You know, so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power responding. Chester, you know, so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Oh, it feels good to be back on the regular schedule. <laughs> Warning, listening to this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, your small group study, your Bible college. Um, it may even cause relationship problems. Just want to let you know that ahead of time. I uh, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Yeah, that's right. The way this works is is that uh, we continue bringing out quality discernment radio for you and proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins day after day after day. And uh, you continue to grow in your understanding of the Bible and how to correctly uh, use discernment in order to make sure that you're not deceived as well as helping others to, to that they're not deceived. And what happens is, is that you support us financially. We keep doing what you're, we're doing. You keep growing. You keep learning. It's, it's this wonderful symbiotic partnership, if you would. And uh, you can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons there at the website, and you'll be directed to a secure page where you can send your contribution in uh, securely, instantly, all right there online. Or you can do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 4. Six zero three eight. All right, one more news story here, officially here. Um, headline reads: uh, Percent of female senior pastors doubles over past ten years. Now, this is very problematic. Why is this problem? This is not good news. This is problematic uh, because Scripture is absolutely clear that uh, that women are. This is not one of the f- offices that women are to hold. 
It's and this is God's deal, not mine. It's I'm not trying on purpose to be an obnoxious, close-minded, overweight male uh, Western-thinking uh, chauvinist pig. That's really not what this is about. Um, there's certain things I can't do that you know because I'm a man. I cannot have children. I'm just telling you, it just is not going to happen. Um, you know, I don't get to get pregnant or, or, you know, and I don't get to be a mom either. I'm a dad. And so, uh, God has created us male and female and put us in complementary roles to each other. That being the case, uh, God's word could not be clear that a woman is not to have authority over a man in the church. So when we read something like this from Barna, the, the subhead should read that this, this means ergo the, the number of churches that are abandoning the clear teaching of God's word is growing significantly. That's the subhead to the story. We read the uh, percentage of U.S. Protestant women. By the way, this is Joshua Goldberg of the Christian Post who wrote this. Uh, the percentage of U.S. Protestant women serving as senior pastors has doubled over the past decade, according to the latest study by the Barna Group. Throughout most of the 1990s, just 5% of Protestant senior pastors were female. Since that time, the proportion has slowly but steadily risen, doubling to 10% in 2009. This is bad news. The study indicates that women have made substantial gains in the past 10 years, the Barna Group reported Monday. Gains? That No, I think the way to correctly interpret this is that the church has suffered substantial losses in sound biblical teaching. Not surprisingly, a large portion of the female pastors, 58%, are affiliated with a mainline church. <clears throat> Translate that into liberal. Among male pastors, less than a quarter, 23%, is affiliated with a mainline group. Uh, the survey also found that while uh, female pastors are generally more educated than their male counterparts, they typically are are compensated with less. <sighs> well, I guess we got a glass ceiling going on there in the pay scale thing. Um, <clears throat> currently, more uh, currently more three to uh, more three to four female pastors. That's a weird way of putting it. That's a bad sentence there, Josh Goldberg. Anyway, um, we read. Uh, currently, uh, three in four uh, female pastors have a seminary degree, while less than two-thirds, 63% of male pastors, reported the same. <laughs> Why does this not surprise me? Okay, so let, let me see if I have this straight. The 63% of male pastors do not have a seminary degree. Could that possibly explain just the miserable preaching that we find day after day after day to, um, well, how do I put it, uh, to basically review here at Fighting for the Faith? Man. Still, the average compensation for female pastors in 2009 was found to be $45,300 a year, while the median for male pastors was $48,600. That's not a lot of money. Um, it depends on where you live, though. Quote, a stri as striking as the gap may be, it, it has diminished somewhat over the last 10 years, the Barna Group reported. While male pastors have experienced a substantial increase in compensation packages since 1999, up 21%, female pastors receive an even greater jump, growing by 30%. In other words, the difference in compensation has been cut by more than half 
uh, from uh, 6,900 per year to about 3,300 uh, uh, annually. The polling group suggested that one of the reasons for the discrepancy in pay could be the difference in the size of the congregations they lead. Male pastors lead congregations that were on an, on average 103 adults large. Female pastors, meanwhile, led an average of 81 adults on a typical weekend. Okay, um, let's see here. Uh, over the uh, overall, the Barna Group has found that the median number of adults attending Protestant church services during a typical weekend dropped from 108 in 1999 to 101 in 2009. Some of that decline is attributable to the increase in the numbers of adults uh, attending other forms of church, such as house churches, as well as a declining percentage of young adults who regularly attend Protestant church services, the organization explained. For their study, the Barna Group polled a random sample of 603 senior pastors uh, one less than they had in their 1999 survey. The range of sampling error associated with each sample pastors uh, is between uh, plus and minus, uh, plus point, 1.8 and plus uh, 4.1 percentage points at the 95 percentile confidence level. So there you have it. That, I think, again, how do, uh, biblically, how are we to interpret this? This news that the, the number of, you know, percentage of female pastors has grown the the correct biblical answer is is that this is a sign of rebellion and apostasy against God and God's word and His clear instructions regarding uh, who is to be a a pastor. So, all right, we're going to enter the world of the Twilight Zone here for a second, uh, which probably might be a good idea to play Twilight Zone ish music. Let me see if I have that uh, if I have any Twilight Zone ish music handy. Uh, let's see, Twilight Zone. No, not that. That's the, that's for the bit itself. Thanks. Okay, let's see. Twilight. Let's see. Twilight Zone. Here we go. Uh, song. There we go. Let's see. Let's see if we can find this uh, real quick here. Yeah. <clears throat> You are traveling through another dimension. A dimension of sight and sound and mind and emergence and, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> I, I'm not doing so good on this intro. Anyway, Peter Rollins, one of the, quote, fresh thinkers of the emergent church movement and a uh, good buddy of, uh, of, of such people as um, Brian McLaren, Phyllis Tickle, and Rob Bell, of all people, has recently... Um, held a contest on his blog uh and uh, the it was a parable writing contest and this um the, he's announced the winner of the of this parable writing contest and um the winner was uh, Kester Bruin and his parable entitled footprints uh, you'll notice that there are some touch points with the ever so famous footprints uh parable that has uh, graced christian bookstores and greeting cards uh, for decades now um but aside from the fact that footprints and sand are mentioned uh, aside from that um we're off into really bizarro twilight zone land I, I warn you ahead of time. So uh, let's uh, cue up the appropriate music for uh, for me to read this parable to you. The, the award-winning emergent parable. 
Yes, there we go. <clears throat> now, I, I, I apologize if this music sounds like it might put you to sleep. <clears throat> this is Footprints by Kester Bruin. There was once a man who had lived a long and difficult life. When he finally lay down, a faint smile bent the lines in his face as his eyes were shut. He had run the race. Now he could rest. The curtain was pulled back and he stumbled through the light to meet God. My master and my friend, the old man hailed God as he prostrated himself before God's feet. Hearing no reply, the man looked up and saw God shuffling awkwardly in his chair, not quite managing to fight back a, a blush across his cheeks. Not wanting his moment of judgment and welcome to be spoiled, the old man gathered his courage and spoke up. My Lord and my God, he began nervously, is this not the time when my life and works shall be weighed in your scales and my name checked against those who have made it into the book of life? After such a tiring day, it was difficult for him to remember the exact details of what was meant to be happening, but he felt certain that it should be God who should be taking the lead. My child, said God, sadly, before petering out and looking around for some way out, Following God's gaze, the old man took in a crumpled photo pinned to a crowded notice board, hung askew in a dark corner. His heart leapt. Father, he said, getting up carefully like a servant in medieval court, here is a photo of footprints on a beach. God took it and stared at it for a while. And as the man perceived his eyes glistening, his own tears came, for he knew the photo and knew the words of comfort that came with it. Tell me, Lord, he said, knowing already the lines that would come, tell me what the footprints mean. And so God began. Your life has been like a walk along the beach with me, M many scenes from your life flashing across the sky. In each scene there are footprints in the sand, sometimes two sets, at, at other times only one. At this point, God paused and looked down, and so the old man seized the initiative and played to his part. Lord, this bothers me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow, or defeat, I could see only one set of footprints. He looked up but saw God unmoved, so he continued. You promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I have noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there has only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? He bowed his head, holding back the tears, ready for the words of succor that he knew must come. And slowly God replied, his voice shaking with emotion. The years when you have seen only one set of footprints, my child, is when you carried me. The man frowned for a moment and paused and, and then looked up, 
Well, surely, Lord, he began rather embarrassed to be correcting the Almighty. You mean, when you carried me? My dear child, God said, twisting a loose thread of cloth from his flowing robes, his face suddenly a mirror, in which the old man saw the battles he had fought and the doubts that he had put asunder. This was the measure of your faith. When difficulties came, you gathered up this tired and arthritic God and carried your beliefs to safety. A small wind blew through the old photographs and worn papers, and the two men sat in silence for a moment. I have I've prepared a room for you, God said, after a while, though I, I quite understand it if you don't want me to stay. So there you have it. That's the uh, the award-winning emergent parable um, footprints. Whew. <laughs> By Kester Bruin. <sighs> what? <laughs> what was that? What on earth? <laughs> So we've got this arthritic god that was carried by the guy, and uh, and then at the end he he says, "I've prepared a room for you, but uh, if I quite understand, if you don't want me to stay, what <laughs> what on earth is this about? Oh my goodness, this is all kind of bizarre here. Um, yeah. So there you have it. That, that that's the um, the award winning. Emergent parable, uh, the, the the award-winning parable, of course, Peter Rollins of the Emergent Church being the one who um, had the contest. Yeah, that was awkward. <laughs> Boy, those emergents sure can tell stories, can't they? I mean, that's just, that's just some great narrative theology right there, man. Apparently, it's taking a stab at people who seem to think that they can understand God or can un, you know can be certain in their beliefs regarding Him. Uh, forget the fact that Scripture says that uh, faith is being sure and certain of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, <clears throat> and that God does you know Christ does go and prepare a place for us. Ah, uh, forget that. All right, real quick before we dive into our second break, I'm gonna we're gonna set up the. Um, the sermon review here on this side of it, at least um, Bill Hybels uh, recently sent out a press release uh, trying to drum up uh, media uh, awareness, if you would, uh, basically media exposure for his brand new sermon series entitled The Forgotten Way. And uh, the Christian Post on Monday uh, picked up on his press release. I saw it come across the wires last week. And uh, has uh, written a st- uh, Audrey Barrick of the Christian Post has written a story about it. Now, what we're going to do here is uh, the reason I want to read the story is because um, it kind of shows you how the uh, the seeker driven model works. You know, one of the things that's really important in the seeker sensitive movement is uh, availing yourself of all different marketing uh, and media outlets so that you can get the word out about what you're doing. And uh, apparently, you know, Willow Creek being the the large congregation that it is, large and influential uh, congregation that it is, Bill Hybels and Rick Warren probably being the the two most influential men in the whole seeker-driven movement, um, 
you know, they've, you know, this kind of shows you the nuts and bolts of it. So they sent out a press release. It was picked up and there was a story written about it. And I want to read to you about this sermon that we're going to be reviewing. The headline reads, Heibel's redirects Christians to the forgotten way. The forgotten way. Does that, is it me or does that sound like middle, does that sound like Eastern, you know? That the that somehow he's gonna you know, that Christians have forgotten the way of the Zen path or something like that and have forgotten all about rock gardens and how to meditate. Addressing the concerns and needs of a twenty-five thousand member congregation, Pastor Bill Hybels launched a sermon series this past weekend challenging them to return to Jesus' way or what he called the forgotten way. We're gonna, you're going to hear the sermon itself. A quote, we're going to ask ourselves the question, why did this way of living ever get substituted for something else along the way? That wisdom became so attractive and, and maybe so cheap that entire cultures abandoned Jesus' way for alternate paths. Hybels told attendees at Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, quote, the Forgotten Way series was born out of a desire to respond to the 20,000 prayer requests that that they received this past Easter. Many of them dealt with pace of life issues, human sexuality, conflict resolution, and money. So, okay, so they basically, here's what they did. Okay, let me deconstruct this for you. Back at Easter, Willow Creek Community Church, you know, had people fill out prayer request cards and send them forward to put them in the plate, if you would. And and they ended up using these prayer requests as a form of a sociological survey to find out what the felt the the most pressing felt needs of their congregation were, and they boiled it down to four topics: uh, pace of life issues, which is the sermon we're going to be listening to today; human sexuality, conflict resolution, and money. So they've turned that into a sermon series entitled The Forgotten Way, which is a four-week-long sermon series. And guess what they're going to be talking about? Pace of life issues, human sexuality, conflict conflict resolution, and money. See, they're meeting the felt needs of their congregation. So over the course of four weeks, Hybels is hoping to take the teachings of Jesus from 2,000 years ago and focus them on the needs of the congregation today. Oh, he's such an innovator. I mean, whoever heard of, you know taking Jesus's teachings from 2000 years ago and preaching about him today. I mean, <laughs> no, that's just crazy talk <clears throat> while also contrasting the teachings with the conventional wisdom of today's culture. I mean, yeah, I mean, wow, what an innovator, whoever, no one would have ever thought of this <clears throat> quote. There's two kinds of paths. He said in a promotional video, there's a broad path that you can take in life uh, you make you can make all kinds of choices, follow anybody you want, but Jesus said it often leads to destruction. <laughs> often leads to destruction. So when Jesus says that the the broad is the road that leads to destruction, that's just broad. That if you're on that broad road, just it, it, he was just saying that oftentimes that leads to destruction. Are we talking about hell there, Bill? By the way. Uh, quote, there's a second kind of path that Jesus talked about, and he said it's a narrower path. In fact, it, it, it only follows one leader, it follows one way, it follows one set of teachings, but it leads to life. <clears throat> Notice how the gospel is being uh, surreptitiously turned into a, um, 
Well, it's something that you do. Um, in his sermon kicking off the series, the megachurch pastor addressed the issue of pace of life. He challenged Creekers. <laughs> Creekers? Creekers. He challenged Creekers to slow down and stop running after or chasing after things like what to eat and what to wear. <sighs> ah, Sermon on the Mount. High pace, uh, high, a high-paced life could kill relationships, not only with family members, but friends also. Uh, but also with God, because but uh, God, because oftentimes it's time spent with God that gets squeezed out. <sighs> anyway, so there you that you've got the you know the Christian Post story about the sermon that and how did how did he get ink regarding his brand new sermon series? Well, he sent out a press release, and the Christian Post picked it up because you know Bill Hybels is a super highly influential leader of the seeker sensitive movement. And, uh, you know, it would be apostasy to not uh, <clears throat> give him ink. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to we're gonna actually be reviewing Bill Hybels, um, the Forgotten Way sermon regarding the pace of life issues. You know, because Je- Jesus came to solve those pace of life issues, apparently. And uh, so that'll be our sermon review when we get back. So you definitely don't want to miss it. And uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can follow me on uh, Facebook. My name there is Chris Rosebro. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. Creekers. Apparently those are the people who attend Willow Creek. I've never been a Creeker. Although I get the feeling when once I get to geriatric age that um, I could be considered a Creeker at that point. But I, the, I think I've changed the definition of the meaning there. Or the meaning of the definition. <laughs> You know what I meant. Man, I can't believe when I twist things like that in my mind. I, I, uh, 
Yeah, I hate it when you reach into the brain and the wrong words come out. It's just a more sign of <clears throat> that decrepitude is creeping up upon me. All right, time for our sermon review today. That means it's time for our sermon review update music. That's right, the good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. And this is a momentous occasion due to the fact that this is the very, 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 very first Bill Heibel sermon that I've done on the program. Now, you'd think I'd be more with it, you know, being as relevant as I am. Sorry, yeah, I, I know some of you out there just spewed coffee on your computer screens. I apologize. <sighs> Roseboro and relevant, two words that don't go get, go together, that's for sure. Now, as you uh, previously heard at the tail end of uh, the second segment of the program today, uh, we read a news story in the Christian Post about this cutting-edge sermon series entitled The Forgotten Way that covers four felt-need topics uh, from pace of life issues to human sexuality to conflict resolution and money. The first installment deals with pace of life issues, which kind of begs the question, um, where in the scriptures do we hear um, Jesus clearly teaching about pace of life issues? Is that the big problem Jesus came to solve? And uh, the, the more interesting question is, will Bill Hybels be able to make his case the, regarding the biblical teachings on pace of life issues without, well, twisting God's word? I'm not holding out a lot of hope. All right, kill the music. Thank you. All right, so we're uh, <clears throat> now it's time to actually get into the sermon itself proper. So without any further ado, here is uh, is Bill Hybels in on the sermon entitled The Great Chase from his cutting-edge sermon series that's getting all kinds of media attention, The Forgotten Way. Hey, this summer, a friend of mine invited me over to his house to let me drive his brand-new high-performance Tesla. This is a car. Uh, any of you know what's unique about a Tesla? It's electric powered. It has the look of a Ferrari. Uh, it's wicked fast. It's quite expensive, but it doesn't burn a drop of gas or diesel. It's almost environmentally perfect and a lot of fun to drive. So after driving it and drooling over it for a little while, I drove home in my cash for clunker. And on the way home, I was kind of asking myself how quickly are most American cars going to make the transition over to the electric motor? I thought, this is like breakthrough technology. Costs are coming down. Cars drive well. Good for the environment. How fast are we all going to go that way? So I did a little internet study that night and learned that in the early 1900s, 28% of all cars built and sold in the U.S. were electric powered, if you can believe it. The technology has existed for this for over a hundred years. And nearly a third of all the cars in the early 1900s were electric. But then you know what happened. Henry Ford and others started mass producing gasoline powered cars, which drove the cost way down. And even though the gasoline engines were noisy and an environmental nightmare, 
sales of gasoline-powered cars went through the roof and electric-powered car companies were driven out of business. Now, a hundred years later, after almost irreparable damage to our environment and near enslavement to Middle East oil producers, now we're circling all the way back to a nearly forgotten technology, the electric motor. I mention this because we're starting a four-week series today called The Forgotten Way. We're going to look at some of the wise, practical, efficient instructions that Jesus gave his followers 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> wise, practical, and efficient instructions. I mean, this is like rediscovering the electric car. I mean, what were we thinking? <clears throat> yeah, call me, uh, color me incredulity, if you would. And then ask ourselves the question, why did his way of living ever get substituted for something else along the way? Uh, let me see. Could it be that we're sinful by nature? How did his way of living ever get sub... Oh, boy. Why do I feel like we're, we've completely missed the whole point of what Jesus was doing? Was he here revealing a way of living? You know, a, a ancient Chinese secret, if you would. Oh, boy. Uh, this, I, I just get the feeling I'm not going to like this sermon. What wisdom became so attractive and maybe so cheap that entire cultures abandoned Jesus' way for alternate paths. And how has all this worked out? Entire cultures abandoned Jesus' way? Uh, what would those cultures be again? And what is this way? And the underlying question to this whole series will be, might it be time? for all of us, and maybe for our whole world, to return to the forgotten way. Uh, Bill, just uh, want to point something out. You, you are aware that all human beings are by nature children of wrath. They are by nature sinners and rebelling against God and dead in trespasses and sins. It's not like humans, we start off with our default setting as following Jesus' way, and then we forget about it and need to rediscover it. By nature, we don't want to have nothing to do with Jesus' way of doing nothing. <sighs> to dive right in, we're going to read a passage from Jesus that speaks to an issue that affected people in first century culture and certainly affects people in 21st century culture. The issue surrounds the velocity with which we move through life. There's a passage of scripture that deals with the velocity that we travel or, or live our lives. Okay. <laughs> I, I got to see this one. The RPM levels that we attain and try to sustain in our daily weeks and months as we live. So there's a passage of scripture that deals with our RPM levels that we try to sustain ourselves in the way we live. I am just not familiar with this passage, uh, Bill. 
why do I feel like you're going to have to twist something out of context in order to make this case? I could just feel it coming. Call me a prophet if you would. So read with me, and I, I'll ask you to read aloud from Matthew 6. These are the words. Oh, <laughs> from Matthew 6. Those of you who don't know the joke here, he's mis- He's basically quoting Math- uh, Matthew chapter 6 at, what, 31 through 33, out of context. Okay, hang on a second. Before he reads, we're going to read it in context. Now, remember... Three most important rules of biblical interpretation of correctly understanding God's word are context, context, and context. 90% of all bad uh, uses of scripture are cleared up if you actually go into the text itself and read it in context. Excuse me, in context. Okay, this is not going to be any different. So we read from Matthew chapter 6, which, by the way, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is part of an entire sermon. Okay, so let me back this up. And uh, let's see. Context, we'll, we'll start in the middle of the sermon, chapter 6, verse 19. We read, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore... I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But... If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, I'm going to point something out here. Jesus is pointing to anxiety and worry and being caught up in worrying about all the different things that you need in order to survive in this lifetime. Food, clothes, money, things like that. And 
he, Jesus is identifying the root cause of that anxiety and worry is lack of faith, that you do not fear, love, and trust in God, that you do not have faith and trust in him. And so all of that has its root in unbelief, in lack of faith. And what he's doing here is he's pointing out their sin and their unbelief and their faith and and showing them just from examples in nature that God is a loving and gracious God who cares for his creation and pointing to the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and making the case that before God we are far more important than the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. He's pointing us to our gracious and loving Father and prodding us to faith in Him and to have faith and trust in Him. That's why Jesus says, O you of little faith. So we continue reading. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and... Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Okay, now, is this about pace of life? No. This is about lack of faith and the worries and anxieties that come, that, that come about as a result of lack of faith in God. Okay, and the solution is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What is he referring to? What is the righteousness of God? It is nothing less than the righteousness of Christ that is given to us as a gift by God. So when we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we are seeking after the righteousness of Christ to be clothed in him and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, as Paul says in Philippians 3, but having the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ. So this this entire thing, this, this segment of this sermon here, is pointing out unbelief and the anxiety that comes about as a result of that unbelief and lack of faith in God and is pushing us to see God as our loving and gracious Heavenly Father and to seek after Him and His righteousness in faith. And those of us who trust in Christ and seek after the righteousness of God by faith, all these things are added to us as well. Why? Because we know by faith that we have a loving and gracious Father who cares for us. That is God himself. Okay? Now, that's a correct look at this segment of the Sermon on the, Ra- on the Mount. Um, this isn't about pace of life issues at all. Anything in here about you're living too fast or you got too much on your plate or things like that? No, this is about lack of faith. So now we go back to uh, <clears throat> Bill Hybels. Having correctly exegeted it for you, let's take a look at what he now does with it. Of Jesus, let's please read in full voice. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For people with no faith at all run after all these things. 
Your heavenly Father knows your needs. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now look at that third line. For people with no faith at all, what do they do? They run after all these things. Oh, boy. Okay, so let's see. What translation is he using? What, what should we say? Uh, uh, for people with no faith at all, run after all these things. The, the, no faith at all. It's the Gentiles. Hang on a second. There, therefore, do not be anxious what will we eat, what will we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all those things. This is a dubious translation. We continue. Your heavenly Father knows your needs. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added unto you. Jesus is saying there's really two classes of people in life. Jesus is saying there's two classes of people in life? Would those be believers and unbelievers? Those who have faith in Christ and those who don't? There are the running after people... And then there are seek first people. Oh, man, you've got to be kidding. There's running after people. Uh, I just don't. Yeah, that's what I think about it. No, it's not how this works. No, Jesus is not laying out that there's two kinds of people in the world, the running after people and the seek first people. Unless, of course, you're talking about people who do not have faith in God, who do not have faith in Christ. Just sort of two groups in life. They operate completely differently. Do you know any running after kinds of people? Do you know any? People who tend to be overextended and hyper... Oh, see, this is what happens. This is exactly what happens when you completely biff the passage when you take it out of context and you use a bizarre translation because uh, the translation he was looking he was he found was the one who run after the run after people <sighs> hyperactive and all pressured up anxious most of the time busy pretty much all of the time do you know anybody like this i was going to do a little jogging a little running one time this summer and we were over at our tiny little cottage in Michigan, so uh, I got on my running clothes, and as I was heading out of the cottage, I noticed my wife had left me a message on the counter saying that she was going bike riding. I thought, well, that's interesting, so she was out riding already. I went on my normal running route. I get a couple miles down the main road that I run on, and on the other side of the street, I see Lynn riding her 30-year-old Schwinn bike with a basket on the front, I bought it for her 30 years ago. She's wanted an upgrade. No, can't do it. <laughs> so she's pedaling this bike, coming across the street on the sidewalk. And I think, I know she hasn't seen me yet. So I think, I'm going to have a little fun with Lynn. So I make a very careful crossing of the street where she can't see me. There's a couple of vans parked along the side of the road, kind of, you know, uh, providing a little place for me to hide out. So I standing between those two vans and she's coming down the sidewalk and at the last minute I jump out in front of her and it wasn't Lynn 
It was so not Lynn. And this total stranger woman did not have the humor of Lynn. And uh, she starts yelling at me, what in the world are you doing and all that? And I said, ma'am, I'm so terribly, terribly sorry. She goes, you could have given me a heart attack. And I said, I'm having one right now. And she said, young man, I might call the police. And I thought, how is this going to play out in the press? Church pastor harasses woman on bicycle. You know, I'm like, oh my gosh. And I kept apologizing and apologizing. Finally, she said, well, if you'll never do this. I said, I will never do this again. So we parted, not quite as friends, but uh, okay. So a little later on in that same run, I'm circling around out by the little public beach and there's a family walking along the sidewalk and I give them a wide berth. I don't want anything to do with anybody on sidewalks for the rest of the summer. So, but as I'm running by, a little, th- uh, probably five-year-old kid or so, just a little guy, says to his parents as I run by, Daddy, why is that man running? Why is that man running? This is precisely the question that Jesus was asking in the first century. Why? Uh, No, he wasn't. Only by taking this passage out of context and twisting it. There's so many people running after stuff. Why are so many people chasing things to buy and chasing things to wear and chasing things to eat, chasing things to own? Worried sick that if they slow their pace, all of this stuff is not going to come their way. See, this is what happens when you don't properly distinguish long gospel and you take a passage out of context. It sounds like he's, he's telling us what the text says, but he's not. This is a story about lack of faith. Jesus chides them, oh, you of little faith. Oh, man. Why is it that people have these anxieties about these things? Because they do not see God as their loving and gracious Father. They're at war with Him and they're sinning against Him. Or life will lose a certain zest or something. The follow-up question why are people, to, to the question, why are people running so much, is the question, what will be the unintended consequences of people who run too much? <laughs> what? What What will be the unintended consequences of people who run too much? Oh, boy. Yeah, that's right. We're going to deal with suburbanite angst here in America. Or who chase too much. Notice by basically putting this in the context of of American suburbanite angst, of the middle experienced by the middle and upper classes of uh, American society, you you miss the way to preach this to everybody, because this is about the anxiety that is caused by lack of faith. Now we certainly live in a running after culture. Do you know that in the last twenty years, working time has increased by more than fifteen percent, leisure time has decreased by thirty three percent. We're barraged by emails, assaulted by 
advertisers, record numbers of us require sleep medication because our, our brains can't slow down after processing way too much information way too rapidly in the normal day. I read recently the average person today receives more information in a single day than someone living a hundred years ago received in a lifetime. Staggering, isn't it? We're living in a culture in a time in history with a need for speed. I live in that culture. The other night I was warming something up in the microwave. I put it on for 45 seconds. I thought, I can't waste time. And so I did like two or three emails on my Blackberry before the buzzer went off. And when I finished those emails, I was tapping my foot saying, this microwave takes forever. <laughs> 45 seconds. Three emails. I'm a part of this thing. And there are unintended consequences for running, for chasing, for hurriedness. There are unintended consequences for pressured up, high-speed, high-velocity living. Some of you veteran Creekers will know that in the early 90s, I got so caught up in a running-after lifestyle that I hit a wall. And I hit a wall very hard. I didn't have to, you know, take extended time off ministry, but I had to slow it down for a while, and I wound up spending some time with a Christian counselor. I actually had to walk into a guy's office and say the four-letter word, help. And we had to spend quite a bit of time figuring out the inner world reasons for all my running. All my chasing. Any of us who constantly overcommit to stuff and press the envelope too hard, any of us who drive ourselves intensely, there are reasons why we're running. I've got to remind you, this the passage, Matthew 6, 31 through 33, which he quoted from a bizarre translation, an exotic plant, if you would, um, does not is not about the difference between people who are running and have a fast-paced life the passage is about those who because they do not trust in god worry about the things of the world not seeing that god is a gracious and loving father who cares for them and will meet their needs far different than what he's preaching about here Apparently, he was living such a fast-paced life when he prepared this sermon that he uh, missed what the passage is really about. There are reasons. And I had to process the inner world reasons why I was running too fast. Mine had to do with substituting for, for gaining affection and approval from people through achievement. I grew up in a home that you didn't get affection for just showing up. You had to earn it. And I figured that out. And I just got on an earning cycle just as a little kid and went, man, I've got to earn it the rest of my life. I've got to earn the esteem and the affection and the approval of other people. And there I went. There's always a reason why you're running. 
It might be fear-driven. Like, I'm in this all alone. I'm in this world all alone. If I don't run, no one's looking out for me. It might be needing the approval of someone you're trying to impress. It might be someone who said to you, you're never going to amount to anything in the rest of your life. You're going, oh, yes, I am. Sometimes it's old-fashioned ego. You get in a competitive industry, and you start feeling the thrill of beating the competition, and that gives you a sense of self-worth, and you run because it's fun to compete and win. Sometimes it's as simple as the power of greed and materialism. And sometimes it's as complicated as trying to save and restore the whole world yourself so that you can pay back the debt of grace you owe to Jesus Christ. Isn't that odd? That you would be saved by grace and then become trapped in a cycle of running to try to pay back grace. Uh, this uh, officially here, I would say, counts as a gospel nugget where he talks about saved by grace. I mean, that sounds very gospel-like. So hang on, we got to calculate how quickly the gospel nugget came in. Hold on. All right. I'll carry this uh, this second. Okay, calculations. Uh, roughly, no, actually, I, hang on one more. Uh, there we go. All right, the gospel nugget, at least this particular one, came in at Mach 3.1. That's a little slower than most, so I mean, you can actually kind of hear something about the gospel, something gospel-like. Uh, we continue. Which you really can't do, and God never asked you to. My point again is runners have their reasons. Some find out their reasons along the way. It helps them lower their speed a little bit. My experience is most runners never slow down enough to figure out their inner world reasons and they just keep running. But if you keep running, there are unintended consequences of this constant speed. Oh no, not unintended consequences. Why don't you tell us about like a real problem? Because, <laughs> you know, those who do not trust in God, who do not trust in Christ for their salvation, the, the consequence of that is eternity in hell. Not just uh, that things don't turn out quite the way you expected them because there's some unintended outcomes and consequences for living a fast-paced life. Runners would be well served by the big yellow road signs that used to decorate the mountain roads in Montana. Speed kills. Remember those signs? Speed kills. You do know that speed kills relationships. Certainly you know this. Try deepening the level of intimacy with you and your spouse or significant other. When one or both of you are living pedal to the metal, Mach 2, how does that work for you? Try get Apparently badly, I guess. Uh, law, no gospel. Getting close to the heart of your four-year-old or your 14-year-old, when you leave the house before they get up and you come home exhausted after they've gone to bed. How does that work? Try to be a friend to your friends when you're never available. To hang out with your friends or to listen to your friends or to serve your friends. What usually happens is you wind up 
friendless. Speed can kill relationships. In the early days of Willow, there was a very bright, attractive teenage girl who showed up at the Willow Creek Theater. We were running the movie theater at the time, and this young gal had such a troubled soul. And I was trying to figure out as best I could how to help this young woman and figure out what had gone wrong in her life. And then I kind of started to understand that she was love-starved because her dad was a runner. And all that was really at the root of this girl's problems, she missed her dad. She told me one day that whenever she'd get home from school, she would look at the height of their front lawn. I was like, really? Why did you do that? She said, because when the lawn got to a certain height, my dad would mow it, and that was the only time we would have any real relationship. My dad would, would invite me to walk alongside of him when he mowed our lawn. She said, we didn't talk. There was no physical affection or anything, but the fact that he invited me to walk alongside of him when he mowed the lawn for 20 minutes a week, it's pretty special, she said, but... After a while, even that didn't do it. And I lost track of that girl, but I think she's probably having problems to this day. It's tough to, to live and expect love from someone who's running all the time. So speed kills human relationships. Speed can maim your emotions. You know this. You keep your RPM levels too high, it flatlines your emotions after a while. You, you don't belly laugh at, at things that are funny anymore, and you don't cry over things that are really sad, because you're just moving on. Obviously, your speed can kill your body. You see people dropping over all the time. Just speed. But the thing I want to spend a few of our remaining moments really looking at is the fact that speed can kill our relationship with God. No serious Christ follower intends for this to happen. It's simply another one of these unintended consequences of a running after kind of lifestyle. You don't mean it to happen, it just does happen. We actually have some data about this from our reveal surveys that we've done here at Willow. When we would ask the Willow congregation, what is it that keeps you from reading a portion of God's word every day and absorbing it and applying it to your life and, and letting God's truth wash you and refresh you and all that? Kind of like, you know, what keeps you, uh, Bill, from, you know, actually as a pastor feeding God's sheep? from the pulpit like you're supposed to, you know, like the scriptures instruct you to. I, don't you think that would be the better question? Because d don't you remember after the reveal study, all the people in your congregation were complaining about how they were starving to death, and your solution was that they become uh, self-feeders. So apparently now we're hearing, you know, you're trying to keep encouraging them to be self-feeders because you have no intention of actually feeding them from the pulpit. Just wanted to point that little factoid out that that's what's going on here in this sermon. <sighs> we ask, what is it that keeps you from a, from a prayer life 
that connects deeply with God. Couldn't possibly have anything to do with the fact that you don't model a Christian Christian prayer from the pulpit. And that does something internally to you because you've had a conversation with the living God. When we ask you, what keeps you from solitude, from walking on the worship trail, from... From what? From solitude and walking on the worship trail? Is that a bike trail that's just outside the of uh, Willow? Is that part of the campus you have there? You know, the, the Willow Worship Trail? Where you go by yourself to experience solitude? Huh? Oh, he's bought into this whole spiritual disciplines thing. You know, more mysticism. Great. Sitting alone where you can journal and figure out what God's doing in your life. We ask these kinds of questions. It's not that little people respond and say, what keeps me from all that stuff is sin. I'm sinning too much. Or it's not people say, uh, you know, I keep converting to Islam during the week and then I come back in the weekends. It's nothing like that. It's just same answers all the time. Speed. Speed. So it's not sin. It's not, it's not lack of faith. It's speed. Okay. Uh, just keep this in mind, uh, theologians and pastors, when people present with a, a, a sin, okay, you are to diagnose the sin according to what Scripture says and prescribe what Scripture says is the solution to said presenting problem. You're not supposed to take a survey to figure out what's what's at the root of it. The survey will not tell you. If you have a bunch of people presenting with the same sinful problem, uh, the scriptures still dictate the you know what what it is that's at the root of that and how you prescribe. Oh man, oh, this is just so backwards. Uh, <clears throat> this is apparently not a seeker-driven church. This is the data-driven church, the survey-driven church. We say, why wouldn't you join a loving small group of fellow believers and dig in to community? Why wouldn't you use your, your gifts and your talents to feel the thrill of God using you somewhere in our church? Uh, did you notice the postmodern uh, themes in, in, in the sermon here? And dig into community. That's postmodernism. And talking about solitude, those are uh, the spiritual disciplines. Has uh, Brian McLaren been tinkering with your theology, uh, Bill? Why don't you even sit down and work out your finances to make sure that you're honoring God with them. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I swear I'm starting to get like creeped out. It's like I, I'm, I'm beginning to feel the walls closing in on me with this all law, no gospel sermon. Pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. How come you don't? How come you don't? How come you don't? What's causing you to not? Ugh, this is the kind of stuff. Uh, uh, this is just. Sorry, this is shallow pietism at best presenting at the moment here. Or even, why aren't you consistent at weekend services? Over and over, the answer just comes back. One word. Speed. I'm just too busy. I got too much speed because that's what... Uh, oh, man. It's the unintended consequence of life going too fast. And a lot of us say... We use a little different language. We go, but we don't think of it so much in velocity terms. I hear people say around Willow all the time, my life is just so full, I can't 
fit everything in. That's the expression. To which I always respond, if, you, if your life is so full that you can't fit everything into it, you had better be very clear what you're going to leave out of it. Because something or someone is going to get left out. If your life is too full, something's got to go. What is it that's going to go? Now, I want to show you something that many of you have seen in other circumstances or situations. All right. By the way, I'm watching the video here of this particular sermon. If you haven't seen this one, uh, I've seen this at a time management seminar as well as some business hoorah kind of uh, motivational speech. you got two glass cylinders, and uh, one of them is full of sand, and then off to the side is a box of rocks, uh, You know, kind of like fist-sized rocks. Not original with me. If I could find who did this the first time, I would give them attribution. I couldn't find out who did this the first time. But this one vase here is partially filled with the sand of everyday necessities. Like, the, the, this is the stuff we all have to do every day. We've got to... I've got to ask the question. Do you think this is what Jesus meant by seek first the kingdom of God? That, you know, that this metaphor ultimately is what Jesus was referring to when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is a, a illustration about setting priorities. Is that what Jesus was referring to? You setting priorities? Or was he encouraging people to have faith in God? Shop for groceries. We've got to cook. We've got to do the dishes. We've got to wash the car, mow the lawn, pay the bills. We've got to run the kids around. There's a lot of stuff that we all just have to do every day. Well, then we come to church and then we hear messages where pastors are saying, you know what? You need to fit in your relationship with God. You need to fit in a time where you read the scriptures and you commune with God every day. You go, hey. Yeah, again, turning Christianity to uh, basically legalistic pietism. He's taking one of the rocks and putting him in, putting in the glass cylinder with the sand. Well, maybe I'll try to fit that in. And then you hear someone say, yeah, and, you know, family's really, really important. And I don't mean just, you know, running kids around. I mean quality time with family and date nights with the wife and husband and things like that. You know, He's trying to put another rock into the cylinder. And already we're having problems as far as fitting all the rocks in. Okay, man, I should probably try to fit that in. And then you hear about how you ought to be engaged in the church and use your gifts as a volunteer and stuff like that. And you go, wow, um, I'm going to try to fit that in. And uh, then you hear that you ought to take care of your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you go, oh, oh man, I don't know if I can fit that in. Yeah, this is uh, <clears throat> the list of things that you're supposed to do if you're a, if you're a Christian. Because if you don't do them, you're not really a true Christian. And you go, you know what, I just can't fit it all in. That's the problem with my life. I can't fit it all in. And you hear the words of Jesus when he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Really? So that's what I'm hearing right now? Seek first the kingdom of God? Jesus was giving me a secret to how to fit all these things into my life? What if we were to say, you know what, it's time to reorder our lives. Instead of just figuring out what we can stuff into them, what if we sought first the kingdom of God in very, very practical daily ways? What if we actually said, 
we are going to take our communing time with God and put it in our life first. So this is about setting up proper priorities, making sure that all of your to-do list, that the first priorities come first. And now what he's doing is he's taking these fist-sized rocks and sticking them into the cylinder that has nothing in it. And he's going to be basically putting them all in the cylinder here in a second. I, I got to tell you this because I, I'm, this is radio and you can't see it. What if we were to seek the kingdom of God by making sure that our families... By making sure. Seek the kingdom of God first by making sure that our families. Sir, that's not what Jesus meant by seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Again, you've misquoted the passage, completely biffed it as far as what it's about. Now you're off, you are literally off-roading at this point in your own ideas and trying to shoehorn them in back into this passage. It doesn't work that way. That our marriages and our kids, our families go in first and not just maybe get squeezed out now and then. And what about our engagement with the church? What if we said, you know what? It's the hope of the world. It's the bride of Christ. We're not going to let that get squeezed out. And, you know, maybe how we treat our bodies and... Could be some other just absolute priority things. What if we same list of things you've got to do, by the way. Yeah, this is really comforting. I <sighs> getting tired just thinking about it. Um, and uh, now the you know the rocks are almost completely filled the cylinder here, and the other cylinder has the, all the sand in it still. We put the stones of priority into our life lives first. And then we said, with those things in first, could we... He's now pouring the sand from the sand cylinder into the cylinder with all the rocks. And guess what? The sand and the rocks will all fit now. You see, this is some kind of an allegorical metaphor about living a fast-paced life. And the solution that Jesus was really offering for those of you enslaved in a fast-paced life, he still wants you to do all those things. You don't... (laughs) You, you can't be slacking on that. Just keep that in mind. But it's all about making sure you got the right priorities, and then you'll be able to fit it all in. A- any good news in that? Make everything else fit around those. Could we? And as the demonstration shows, yeah, you really can. You really can. It's all a question of what goes in first so salvation by proper priority setting at least salvation in the in the sense of you know not being overly done with your fast-paced life and and experiencing the unintended consequences of that oh boy many of you have heard matthew 6:33 your whole life he's getting applause for that at this point, I would be leaving the congregation screaming. Yeah, again, I wish I could take credit for that. That was not my idea. Many of you have heard Matthew 6:33 your whole life, or since you've been a Christian. And you think of it in some kind of theoretical or esoteric way. Oh, yeah, in some vague way, I want God to be first place in my life. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I think when Jesus said, you got your runners and you got your seat first, people, I think... He didn't say that. Oh, 
He's talking about people who have faith and people who don't. And people who don't have faith as a result of that lack of faith in their in their true loving father, that is God, experience all this anxiety as a result of it. And they chase after these other things, chasing after them, making them idols, if you would. <sighs> I think he was saying, I'm going to show you how to put the father first in each day of your life. There's a practicality to this. That he goes, stones in first. Other stuff fits around the stones. Uh, by the way, so you t the stone thing is not found in the Bible. Just want to let you know that. He did pretty much confess the fact he couldn't figure out who did it first. Otherwise, he would have given him an attribution. So Jesus wasn't talking about which stones to put into the cylinder first, sir. Take, this is what the challenge is. You take one of these stones, these stones of priority, We'll just take it and talk about the time you spend with God. And you say, you know what? Some stuff might get squeezed out of my average day. God is never going to get squeezed out of my average day. My time with him is inviolable. Be it in the morning, at noon, at night, whenever you decide to do it. But you go, my time that I open the scriptures, that I pray to him, that I worship him, the time of solitude and quietness where I listen to him in an unrushed fashion, non-negotiable. Why? Why should I do that? Why should I make my time with God non-negotiable? What's in it for me? Now, I, I'm speaking a little bit crass here. I understand that. But, you know, I'm, I'm asking the question, you know, because this is all law, no gospel. Again, why, why should I do this again? Will God smite me if I don't? Am I, am I in sin if I don't? Or will I just experience some unintended consequences if I don't? Am I saved by doing this? Am I more holy if I do this? Why again should I do this? It will never be squeezed out of my life. I'm going to put it on my daily calendar. It's going to be in the rhythm of my everyday life. How you do that? You're big boys and girls. You will figure that out. But that you need it in your day on a consistent basis, come on. It's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. I was talking to a business friend who lives out of state this week. He runs a company, has a busy life. You know, I have, to, I have to disagree. That is not what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. It, it, no, that's not what it means. The text itself, that is not what it means. After I talked to them for about 15 minutes on the phone, I said, Ken, you sound so good to me. He's only been a Christian, I think, maybe 15 years now. But he's grown a lot, and he came out of a pretty interesting background. And I said, you sound so good with God and all that. And he goes, I am good with God. He said, I started this routine. I used to rush into my day. He goes, I started this routine where I read a little bit from the Psalms, a little bit from the book of Proverbs, and then I have this little devotional. He told me who had written it, and he said, I read this, and then I journal, then I pray. He goes, you know, when I fit that into my day, my whole day feels different. Well, I'm here to say it in as simple and direct a way as I can. If you allow the concerns and the pace of your life to squeeze your communing time with God out of it, the unintended consequences of that are going to be very high. 
I want to make something clear, okay? I am not saying that we Christians should not be spending time with God on a daily basis. I'm not saying that at all. Daily, I am in God's word, and I'm praying. I don't journal. I've considered that a complete act in self-centered futility. Different story. Nor do I practice solitude. Um, However, I do read my Bible and I pray every day. Does it make a difference in my life? Oh, yeah, most certainly. Sometimes not a good one, too, by the way. God's word has a way of kind of getting in the way of some of the things I want to do because I'm sinful. But, again, it comes down to, I think this comes down to a matter of why. I can tell you exactly why I spend time in God's word every day. Because I have a gracious and loving God who has literally saved me from his wrath to come, has put his name on me in my baptism, has died on the cross for me. I mean, I can't... I, it, I've, to be honest with you, a, a, a day a going going a day without spending time in God's word seems like... How could I not? I don't feel like I have to. Nor do I do it because of the benefits that it brings to my life. I do it because... I can't imagine not doing it. And like I said, some days it actually gets in the way of the things I want to do. Why? Because I'm a sinful person. Spending time in God's word challenges me. And sometimes it hurts because in reading what God expects of me as a Christian, sometimes I have to say I don't live up to that at all. And it causes me to feel guilt and remorse for my sin and contrition and causes me to on a daily basis to repent but it's a fruit of my faith a faith that focuses on my gracious and loving God who has died for me on the cross right now all I'm hearing is self-centered reasons why I should spend time with God That doesn't sound like faith talk to me. That sounds like law talk. And believe me, there is a qualitative difference. If you learn how to build this into your life as a seek first concept, the blessings of God and how your days and weeks change as a result of it over time, unbelievable. It's just a decision that you have to make. And when it comes to the stone of... Just a decision you've got to make. So this is... See, the thing is, is that uh, this forgotten uh, forgotten way apparently is all about just making good priority decisions. Yet I don't see that in the scriptures. Family. I listen to our junior high and senior high leaders who do so well around here. And they tell me with tears in their eyes from time to time... That one of the greatest problems with Willow kids is they don't feel their parents have the time to listen to them. I go, really? Someone is running way too fast. Again, okay, apparently, listen, being a bad parent and neglecting your children is a sin. 
It is not what God would have you do. It needs to be called out for the sin that it is, and the people there need to be called to repentance and hear about the forgiveness of sins, a forgiveness that's offered in Christ for neglecting their children and not being the parent that God has called them to be. I feel like I'm being scolded by a woman. Someone is is uh, is running after things, and they're not being a good parent. Me. <laughs> If you don't have the time to listen to your kids, your speed is out of control. Granted. Now, can you offer us forgiveness of sins? Because obviously they've they've done something wrong. Or are you going to make the solution something they've got to do? I know. They, the, the solution is they've got to seek first the kingdom of God and, and put the, the, right, the right priority stones in the right cylinder before they pour the sand in. So there has to be something that you build into your life where you just go, you know what? There's going to be a family time, whether it's meal time or it's put them to bed time. Okay, you just pointed out that the fact they've done something wrong, there are parents there that are guilty of the very thing that you just slammed, and rightfully so, and the solution is family time. They've transgressed and sinned against God and their children. Are you going to deal with the forgiveness of sins here and maybe even recommend that they confess their sin to their child and ask their child to forgive them? Or it's whatever. There has to be a way that you put the stone of marriage and family in the jar first. There has to be a way. You need... Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> There has to be a way. You need to put that stone in first. Law, 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 more law. And uh, did I mention the law? Where's the gospel again? Oh, yeah, it made a, a very brief cameo appearance. Uh, three point, Mach 3.1. I've become fr friends with one of, of a lot of young dads in the church here. And a guy that I've gotten to know quite well over the last year is a... Business guy, busy guy, has some young kids, and he's a great dad. Really tuned into his kids. But I've been trying to coach and, and mentor him a little bit about the value of family vacations. About, about how something special happens when the family gets away from the regular house. And it doesn't have to be exotic. It can be at the holodome. It can be in the in-law's basement. I mean, it, whatever. But when the family goes away and mom and dad spend concentrated time, unrushed. It's a big deal. And so I was saying to this guy, you got to put this onto your, cal onto your calendar first. And for dramatic effect, I reached into my briefcase and I took out my paper calendar and he looked at it and he said, awesome! I said, really, I haven't shown you anything yet. He, he says, I don't think I've ever seen a paper calendar. <laughs> a little generation gap going here. But I showed him, uh, we have our, fa our Heibel's family vacations all scheduled for 12 months out. Why? Because I used to want to do them, and they got squeezed out by everything. Okay, so uh, where is the passage in Scripture that talks about family vacations again? And uh, notice he's holding himself as the person who's actually pulling this off. Lovely. Great. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, you're so pious and holy. I want to be just like you when I grow up. 
Now we sit down as a family and we go, okay, here's a break we can take, here's a break we can take. Everybody in, everybody have their calendars out. We're putting that family stone in first so it doesn't get squeezed out. You know what I'm saying. And then when it comes to the church stone, almost every week, I'll just get this off my chest, <laughs> almost every week I'll talk to someone after a service and they'll, they'll start their talk with me and they'll go, I am so glad I came to church today. I wasn't going to come. I mean, I had this going on and this going on and this. And then there was that message or that song and I made this incredibly important decision and would you pray with me and we'll seal this decision and I do. And usually afterwards, sometimes I just take them by the shoulders and I go, hey, why were you thinking of missing church to begin with? What's up with that? Would you like check the weather? Is this, is, is this on your option list? Serious-minded Christians don't think of church as being on the option list. This is a part of discipleship. This is a part of being in a right relationship with God where we gather. Where is the gospel? Serious-minded Christians don't think about missing church. Law. Yes. Oh, man. This is legalistic pietism. Unbelievable. On a regular basis. Jesus taught this and provided the example. Look at this in Luke chapter 4. Let's read it together. And on the Sabbath, Jesus went to the synagogue. Next four words. As was his custom. Is it your custom? Let's look at another passage. Hebrews 10.25. Let's read it. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Just don't do it. Don't forsake the assembling. And, you know, I, listen, I completely agree that Christians really should be spending time at church Sunday after Sunday and being fed God's word and receiving his forgiveness and uh, partaking in the Lord's Supper. And they really, really should be doing these things. But again, the reason I go to church is not because I have to, because I get to. I'm not motivated by the law. I'm motivated by the gospel. This is all law. Okay, great. So, All right, I missed church last Sunday. Did I sin? Do I need to receive God's forgiveness? Any word about... <sighs> this is just... <sighs> because when you get into the rhythm of this, and it's a stone in your life. Man, powerful things happen. I would even put vocation, really. Yeah, when you do these things, powerful things happen. Yeah, see, because that's your motivation, because you want powerful things to happen in your life. This is all self-centered. The law always is, by the way. Vocation as a stone in your jar. Let me just spend a, a second on this. Um, of the 25,000 or so people who attend this church on a good weekend, 90... And they keep the numbers. 8.7 of us are called by God to work in the marketplace. I actually did the math and checked it. You know, we have so many people on staff. Everybody else has been called by God to work in the marketplace. 98.7 of us are called by God to create value in the marketplace, to be an ambassador for Christ in the marketplace, to earn and support your family in, from the proceeds of the marketplace and to support the purposes of God in this world through your marketplace involvements and so. And 
This ought to be something that we pray about and that we give our best to. That Part of what it means to seek God first is to live for Him fully in the marketplace. Darren said it well a couple weeks ago. We ought to be praying that the kingdom of God would break forth and break loose in our marketplace environments. We ought to be seeking first the kingdom of God in that environment. I put health and fitness in my non-negotiable vase, if you will. Because it will always get squeezed out of my life if it's not a non-negotiable. And it's pretty hard in my experience to be full on for God when your body is operating at 60% of its potential because you're out of shape or tired or something. So you might choose six rocks, four rocks or something like that. But here's what Jesus is saying. I don't want my followers to lead overextended, hurried, unexamined lives. I don't want them to be running after people. I don't want them. Jesus wasn't talking about that. He was talking about not having faith in God. Oh, ye of little faith. That was the chide there. Um, wow. And to be exhausted, frustrated people who... Yeah, exhausted, frustrated people who feel like Jesus is putting them on a rat wheel. Stumble through this life complaining that we can never fit everything in. I don't want my followers to be people with second-tier concerns that squeeze out top-tier values. Really, um, uh, can you show me uh, from the clear teachings of God's word where he was talking about second and first tier concerns and values? I want my people, Jesus said, to be seek first people whose lives are centered on a God who can be trusted, whose families flip. Trusted for what? It, seriously, the the picture I'm getting of God from you at this point, Bill, is is that if I don't get these things straight, I could sure God can sure be trusted that He's going to discipline me or, or He's going to you know basically wag His finger at me or have some something harsh to say about me, maybe even send me to hell. because they're forethoughts and not afterthoughts, whose churches prevail because they're a priority commitment in my followers' lives, whose careers soar because they're callings. And they're approached in the power of God for the glory of God. And where physical bodies are fitting temples of the Holy Spirit. So basically, the whole seek first the kingdom of God thing basically means that you are thin, uh, have all of your priorities straight. Uh, yeah, okay, I got it. Or, yeah, physical bodies are, are fit and... Yeah, they have the energy to live out the kingdom dream. Is this your life? Uh, If it isn't, am I in sin? Do do you have any good news for me? Because, no, this isn't exactly my life. I I come short of whatever the standard is that you've been holding up here today. Funny enough, it's not found in the Ten Commandments. It's found in the, uh, apparently, the Corporate America Commandments. Are you you basically trying to turn people into good Corporate Americanites? What? Is it, I mean... Would your best friends call you a running after person or a seek first person? Which would it be? What do you want to be? Well, there's that one last part to Matthew 6.33, and it says, If you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto you. All- what a great deal. See, it's a, it's a quid pro quo.
if I do this, then God will do that. He's interpreting the passage in light of the law, not the gospel, which is the wrong way to interpret it. All of these things will be added unto you. What does that mean? Does it mean health, wealth, and happiness? Does it mean immunity from trials and tragedies? Some preachers preach that, and they shouldn't. And some believers believe that, and they shouldn't. You all know better than that. It simply means that seek first people will be the regular receivers of divine blessings and provisions from the hand of a gracious God. Oh boy. Enough to meet your basic needs. Remember the text? Your father knows your needs. He'll meet your basic needs. You don't have to go running after that stuff. And often he goes even way beyond meeting those needs, your basic needs. Those of you who are seek first Christians, many of you know what it's like to seek God first and then out of nowhere comes a new friendship that's a blessing, an answered prayer, an employment opportunity, a healing or a reconciling, salvation of a family member or whatever. And, and when it happens, you go, this is a Matthew 6.33 blessing. I've just been minding my own business, seeking first the kingdom of God. And this is one of those, it will be added unto you blessings. And when that happens, you connect the two, the seek first, and it will be added, the blessing. And you go, oh, that just underscores how desperately I want to live every day of the rest of my life as a seek first guy or as a seek first woman. One more idea and then I'm, I'm going to close. I had a pretty intense summer because most of it was focused on the leadership summit and I had to stay focused. I really, I had to be in that seek first in a real focused way for a long time. And then after that, uh, I got to breathe just a little bit more. And one night I had our family at our little cottage in Michigan. And Todd was back from his sailing around the world thing and Shauna and Aaron and Henry drove over so they could be with us. And we were kind of sitting out on the front deck overlooking Lake Michigan. And three-year-old, almost three-year-old Henry grabbed a broom and he wanted to ride it across Lake Michigan. Apparently he'd been watching some superhero movie thing that involved broom riding. So he grabs the broom and he's running, ready to leap off our 50-foot embankment. And uh, I'm watching this and I leap out of my chair and I go and I grab this kid. And I'm like, Henry, this is a very bad idea, and we need to have a little talk. So uh, I just had a little talk with the guy. And I took the broom away from him, and I said, this is not a good plan. I, I know you think you're a superhero. This is not a good plan. And then I uh, sat down with him. I said, see, right over there, another little kid tried, and he didn't make it. And his, bo <laughs> you know, his body is still floating over there, and it, this is really a bad plan. And uh, so he doesn't buy it, and he's like, oh, you're kidding me. You're cramping my style, man. I think I can make it over there. And so then he goes, uh, broom or no broom, I'm jumping. Get out of my way. And here we go. And obviously I caught him again. But um, the family's watching this whole thing behind me. And uh, we had a, a lovely evening together. So then they all left. I went back and sat out on those stairs later on that night. And I thought, God, this is a Matthew 6.33 night. This is one of those, 
experiences where you just unexpectedly have one of those, it will all be added unto you. Now, I've got to point this out. As poignant and as emotional as this story is, there's something really wrong under the hood here. He's saying it's a Matthew 6.33 moment, which basically means that he earned it. It wasn't given by the gracious and loving hand of God as a gift. It was something that came about because he had done the right things. And this happens from time to time with Seek First People. God surprises you with an experience or just a family gathering or just something where it registers in your mind. I like the course my life is on. I don't want to be this running after guy who's exhausted and burned out and doesn't have time for God or family or anything else. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be this other kind of person. And I know all of you feel the same way. I know you do. Would you stand with me now as we close our service? Now, you heard a beautiful song a few minutes ago in our service. And it talked about God leading and the Spirit moving. If you think you can flip a switch to go from being a running after person to a seek first person. Any forgiveness of sins for the person who's been a running after person? Any forgiveness of sins offered? Does Jesus have any good news for them? Or are you just offering advice, just telling them they need to clean up their act and become the other kind of person? It's a little bit more complicated than that. The Holy Spirit must be involved. This is something you make a decision about, but you invite God. So it all depends on you and your decision. What if I'm not sincere enough when I make the decision? You go, God, I can't break the patterns of my past unless you're involved in my present and in my future. So some of you right now need to just invite the activity of God to align itself with the purpose of your heart to be a seek first woman or a seek first man so Matt's going to lead us and then Darren's going to give us a closing prayer alright so that was the uh, the forgotten way sermon and apparently he lost his way during the sermon because everything was interpreted via the law and uh the gospel made a very short, brief cameo appearance, but not any any clear format. And it was all about what you got to do, the, the decisions you got to make in order to invite the power of God in your life so that you can earn uh, those uh, J- uh, Matthew 6.33 moments uh, through through the fact that you've set the right priorities and made the right decisions. Uh, that's just not the gospel. So let me kind of put a, clean this up a little bit. Listen, some of the things that Bill Hybels pointed out in the sermon are truly sinful. And they, because you are guilty of doing these things, it demonstrates the wickedness of your heart. And it, de- it demonstrates that you are a wretched, not, not a, 
bruised sinner or, you know, a recovering sinner. No, a wretched to the core evil person. How many good decisions do you think it's going to take to cancel out all the times that you have neglected to hear God's word or all the times that you have been a terrible parent and have not have not parented your children properly and have neglected them for some ridiculous pursuit that you have made more important than uh, serving your children by parenting them properly. These are truly sins. You have sinned against your children and you have sinned against your God. Do you think that making some good decisions in your life is going to somehow undo that? No, it's not. And it can't. So the gospel calls you to change your mind, to repent, to see those things for what they are, sins. Transgressions of God's law transgressions of what God calls you to do in life. And the good news is, is that Christ Jesus, God in human flesh, died on the cross for those sins. And he won't, won't give you what you deserve. And instead, he's taken upon himself the punishment that you earned for those transgressions. Upon himself on the cross, he was bruised for your transgressions, beaten for your iniquities. Our iniquity, our sin was laid upon him on the cross. And he's offering you full and complete forgiveness of sins for all of the terrible and wretched things that you've done. Repent, therefore, and believe this good news. And this message, this good news, believe it or not, this, believing this, the Holy Spirit through this message will, will, will regenerate you, raise you from the dead, put you into Christ and have you abide in Him, and begin to produce fruit in your life that's in keeping with repentance. It is through preaching the gospel, not just the law, but both law and gospel, that Christ forms repentant parents who love their children and do not neglect them. Repentant Christians who can't help but show up on a Sunday morning to receive God's word in the sacraments. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Yeah, that's the biblical gospel. And that was what was missing from this try better to make better decisions, get their priorities straight, so-called sermon. This isn't the forgotten way of Christianity. That's just legalism. That's the way that everybody does it. The forgotten way is the way of the cross.
the way of the forgiveness of sins. And sadly, Bill Hybels did not preach that. All right, well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. (laughs) Yes, it is. That's right. We depend on you in order to pay our bills so that we can continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. It's considered a partnership, if you would. And uh, by being generous and uh, supporting Fighting for the Faith, you make it possible for us to also bring this program to other people. Uh, would you partner with us? In fact, you know, not just would you, but you know, do it. <laughs> partner with us. You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, I'd love to get your feedback on uh, that Bill Hybel sermon. That was the very first Bill Hybel sermon that we've reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith. And you could do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can uh, ask to be my friend on Facebook. My name is Chris Roseborough. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ's vicarious death on the cross for your sins, all of them. Amen. Amen.